You're listening to The RN Mentor, a podcast designed to document and bring you the work and experience of some of the most influential nurses in our profession. We will be sitting down and having a discussion with the leaders of today's nursing world as they share their work, how they navigate their nursing path, and their views on the future of the profession. My name is Ali Tayeb. I am a registered nurse, United States Navy veteran, a Jonas Veterans Healthcare Scholar, and your host for The RN Mentor. Welcome to another episode of the RN Mentor Podcast. I am very excited to be joined today by Dr. Summer Thompson. Uh, She is a mental health clinician, scholar, writer, and fierce advocate for mental health in underserved and marginalized populations with a particular passion for veterans, monolingual Spanish-speaking clients, the LGBTQ community, and transgender and gender diverse youth. She currently works as an adolescent and adult psychiatric nurse practitioner for community psychiatry and expert nurse witness for California Board of Registered Nursing, private legal consultant and an assistant health sciences clinical professor at University of California, San Francisco. Dr. Thompson's journey to nursing began with her service as a Peace Corps agriculture extension volunteer in Nicaragua which led to her to attend Johns Hopkins School of Nursing as a Coverdell Peace Corps Fellow. She later commissioned as an officer in the United States Air Force and served for four years at Travers Air Force Base. Dr. Thompson completed her Master's of Science in Nursing and Doctor of Nursing Practice at University of California, San Francisco. Dr. Thompson is currently a member of the World Professional Association of Transgender Health, has published scholarly articles on a variety of mental health topics, including trauma, emotional support animals, and treatment of antidepressant side effects. Welcome to the show, Dr. Thompson. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me here today. I'm, 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 we've been connected for a while. I'm so glad you said yes to being on the podcast uh, lots of topics I want to I want to talk to you about, uh, but as I do with all my guests, we'll start with how did you get started in the world of nursing? Like you said in the introduction, I did the Peace Corps after having gone to Gonzaga University, and I got my first degree in, in philosophy. <laughs> as as you can imagine, the philosophy jobs are few and far between in out there in corporate America. So when I was in the Peace Corps, they had this organ of they had a program available that if you applied to Johns Hopkins, you could get a fellowship, which provided a significant amount of funding. And I figured, um, honestly, I went into nursing because I figured I could uh, work three days out of the week and I could surf for four. And so that was my big plan is I went into it with the hope of uh, having a job where I would earn a decent salary and have a good career, but also I could surf the majority of the days of the week. And it uh, surprisingly, it became a passion of mine. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, so no prior, prior to this, uh, like was, it was nursing, like, were you exposed to nursing at all prior to deciding you're going to use this fellowship or anything like that? I was exposed. Well, I come from a very long family history of nurses. My grandmother was a nurse during world war II in the army nurse corps. Oh, wow. um, she's hundred percent service connected veteran. Um, my multiple aunts on that side of those, my father's side of the family were also nurses. My sister is also a nurse. Um, 
So I, many nurses um, within my life. <laughs> so there's some influence on that end of the world. Definitely. That's awesome. Um, so you became a, a nurse and what was your first job coming out of uh, nursing school? Initially out of nursing school, I went to UCLA. They uh, recruited very heavily from Johns Hopkins. And so it was a big move for me to go from Baltimore over to Los Angeles, as you can imagine, a huge culture change, weather difference. Uh, I worked on the acute inpatient adult unit, essentially where adults go if they're having a psychiatric crisis. It was eye-opening and a heck of a place to cut your teeth as a new graduate nurse. That's great. Uh, now, did you know if you were going to, uh, were you already interested in mental health uh, prior to going, taking that role or? During nursing school, because you do get exposed to so many different specialties, uh, I really enjoyed psychiatry for the fact of being able to connect with people. I love hearing people's stories. I think that's the, the biggest part that I still enjoy about psychiatry today is just hearing about people and really being able to, you know, walk in their shoes maybe for a second and hear their stories. That's what I really enjoyed about it in nursing school and, and kind of led me down that path of working in mental health. Oh, that's great. Uh, now, did you, um, as you were looking at, uh, as you were working in that role, uh, at what point did you decide you were going to go uh, into the Air Force or change of change of scenery from that perspective? I, this is, it was a very strange path. I was able to find, get a job as a contractor at Landstuhl, Germany. And when I was there working as a contractor, I worked on the triage service for service members who were bearing, being air evacuated out of Iraq and Afghanistan, um, contractors and whatnot for psychiatric issues. They had the big issue that they had there was people were getting sent to the inpatient psychiatric unit on base, which was pushing out the local population. Um, after being exposed to doing that for approximately two years. Like I just had this fire in my belly and I was like, you know what? I'm going to join the service. I feel like I could, I could do this and help people out. And so I commissioned in Germany, which is a strange place to commission outside of the United States. <laughs> and then they, um, I was stationed at Travis air force base. So they shipped me from Germany over to Travis air force base, um, in Northern California. Uh, so how was, how was that transition going from, from having worked in the civilian community, uh, going into like the military community? How was that for you? It was strange. I will fully admit that because I didn't go into the military as some 18 year old, you know, fresh out of high school or uh, someone right out of you know college. I was a 32 year old adult who had had a career. Um, it was a little bit difficult for me. I, I will be fully honest, just because there is so much more oversight that you experience within the military. I did like it was annoying in that sense. I was like, I don't understand why you guys want me to do all these things. Like I'm a competent adult. Please just leave me alone. Um, but it was also wonderful for the camaraderie. Like there is, I still am extremely close to so many nurses that I served with. We get together regularly and have bonfires um, even, even now. That's great. Uh, yeah, that's one of the things I, I hear a lot about uh, with people who served, uh, didn't go directly into the service, but they initially find it very uh, difficult. It's like, it seems like it's easy uh, the younger you are, the easier it is to transition into the military. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I want to say, if you, if you've already had sort of a life prior to the military, the transition out might be a little bit easier as well, because you haven't been, uh, so like the impression I think of, of 
joining a military is a lot stronger when you're younger because you're still building an identity versus mm-hmm. a little bit later where you already have an established identity where it does sometimes, con- I've heard it does sometimes conflict with military life uh, just because you do have, you already have that identity and you're not, uh, you're not indoctrinated. It doesn't feel as you're, you're as, I don't say indoctrinated. I, I think that's actually brainwashed. That's, that's an appropriate Maybe brainwashed. <laughs> you're not you're not as brainwashed as you are as an 18 year old going in. So, uh, I love it. So yeah, I I definitely drank the Kool Aid when I when I joined. I went right after high school. So oh uh, goodness, yeah, to transition out. Uh, I still I always tell people I'm still transitioning out. Uh, I've been out 20 years, and I I still say I'm still transitioning out of the military. Uh, so yeah, it's a long process. <laughs> Undeniably. Yes. Um, so, uh, so you, so you served uh, at Traverse Air Force Base, um, and uh, what, and what, what made you decide you were going to leave the military and go back to the civilian world, other than perhaps some military lifestyle wasn't maybe suited or didn't. My goal with going into the military was that I wanted to become a, a nurse practitioner, and so it was. I mean. You look at the exponential cost of getting a graduate education nowadays, and you you can yeah, you know, yeah give you a hundred hundred thousand dollars. So I was like, well, I have a couple of options. I could go to Ushus over in you know the DC area and uh-huh. have that be an option, or I can use my GI Bill. You know, you serve thirty six months, you have that lovely lovely GI Bill um, right. as an option. So when I was looking at those options, if you do go into Ushus, you owe you know time plus the time you spent in. And so that would have been at least another plus a PCS. That's another eight years in the military. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, but there's that aspect of it. Also psychiatric nurse practitioners had an extremely high deployment rate during that time period when I was in, which as a, was a factor as a mom with two little kids. I'm like, I don't want to end up making rotations to Iraq and Afghanistan. So I decided to get out and being that I was in the Bay area, UCSF was like the obvious choice as far as um, psych NP programs. Now, now you, I know you've said you had that exposure going into psych NP. What made you decide that a psych NP career route was for you? Why not just stay bedside? That's a good question. Um, part of bedside psychiatric mental health nursing is very physical. Like there is a certain aspect of it. Like you kind of there. Are a, God bless nurses that can stay and do it and, and do it for 20 years. Um, it, because it really, it can be very physical and you have patients who are not in a mentally well space and it, you know, the potential for injury and, you know, the long-term, um, wear and tear of doing that kind of work definitely takes its toll on you. Um, you know, I always felt that I was not quite achieving my potential of like things that I could possibly do. And, um, you know, as a bedside nurse, especially when I was in the Air Force, I was charge nurse, you know, I was managing 25 people, kind of a situation on a psych unit. And I still felt like, I'm like, yeah, I feel like I'm not quite living up to my potential of what I could be doing. And it, it seemed like that natural transition of really trying to challenge myself with like stretching that brain power and doing something completely different, like going into the psych NP role. It's always that next step that kind of seems to be the driver for for a lot of people who go into their master's and doctoral programs. Uh, Now you did eventually end up pursuing your doctoral degree. I did. Uh, uh, So, uh, and I want to get a little bit into this. So what made you decide to go into a doctoral program? And then after that, I want to talk about scope of practice with you since you are in California. Okay. Um, Again, I, so 
honestly, I love learning. If I, if I had the possibility of being in, in school again right now, I would definitely do it. I, part of it, one, one of the big aspects of it was I still had much time left on my GI Bill. So I was like, well, you know, this is, you know, previously you had to use up your GI Bill within a certain period of time. And I'm like, well, I don't want to be running against the clock and not being able to get like the, those months out of my GI Bill. So I was like, okay, well, I know that UCSF is covered hundred percent. I'd be able to get through the entirety of the DMP program without having to worry pay for it. Um, this love of education, again, with the expanding your brain power and being exposed to things like I, within the course of my career, I've never had a situation in which like learning something new or getting a certification or, you know, trying to, you know, broaden just any type of knowledge that you have has never not served me. So I just, it seemed like the next, again, logical step for me as far as, you know, my education. That's fantastic. Um, now, uh, you, uh trying to get my thoughts together here. Uh, so you went into the DMP program, finished the DMP program. Were you still working? Uh, uh, were you working as an MP when you were going through your DMP program? I was, I was working at community psychiatry where I'm currently working now. Um, it, um, yeah, it was a lot, you know, when you're working full-time and being a full-time mom, as well as going to school and a doctoral program is a, it was a lot of juggling going on, but I was able to make it happen. That's great. Um, now I do want to, I don't want, I do want to talk to you about scope of practice uh, from where we are versus states that have full scope of practice with nurse practitioners. Uh, how's the scope of practice in California for you? Like, how do you work with it? And where do you think your scope of practice should be in California or with when we talk about full scope um, or being able to not, you have full scope, but being able to practice your full scope. Um, what's your thoughts on that? Oh, you're asking the controversial questions now. I see. I don't think there's a controversy about it. I just, uh, uh, you know, there's just uh, different points of views. The, okay, fair enough. That, that works. <laughs> um, you know, within the state of California, they do require that you have a supervisor. Um, in all honesty, it just depends on where you practice and what that actually looks like. I mean, some individuals pay a physician $5,000 and they put their name down and they never talk to them once over the course of like their practice. And like, technically like that fulfills the legal definition of like having a supervisor. And so, I mean, in the context of like, you know, there's the letter of the law and then there's the, you know, the spirit or the intended like thought of the law. And so, okay. you know, many people follow the letter of the law and in reality, all it is is nurse practitioners paying somebody to put their name on a piece of paper which is a joke, really. That's not yeah. how it was really intended to be written. Um, they did recently pass that legislation that they are going to allow nurses to be able to attain full scope of practice after, was it two or three years of practice after getting signed off by a uh, physician? I think it's like three years. Yeah, um, I am excited for that actually. Like that, that's going to be very exciting to be able to practice to the full extent of my scope. Um, you know, I have, mixed, I have mixed feelings about the whole process there. Advanced nurse, advanced practice nursing has an issue right now with the quality of education that's being put out. I know this is a topic that's discussed quite often amongst nursing circles and also amongst physician circles. You know, yeah. there is concern that we are not creating quality clinicians, clinicians that are going to be able to, you know, provide adequate care to patients. It's a valid concern, no yeah. doubt. Um, I think it's just a matter of coming to a consensus within the nursing world regarding like how we are going to regulate ourselves and create a standard of care that actually addresses that issue 
and allows us to be able to provide quality, competent care to our patients. Um, right. I think that nurse practitioners are completely capable of providing um, care to patients without having a supervising physician. Um, but how do we make sure that clinicians are competent? Like, I think that is the issue that we're really facing right now. And, are, and it's not really being addressed by the higher organizations within like advanced nursing practice, truthfully. So you think there's a, I mean, I mean, each state, that is the problem that each state kind of does their own thing and there's mm-hmm. no national standard of where competencies should be, or because if you look at the schools that are out there, there's just so, so much variation. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's some standard number of hours that need to be met. Uh, but then uh, there's like nurses like yourself that have had significant experience prior uh-huh. to going in psych nursing, prior to going into psych mental health. So you, you can always make the argument that you've had years of experience exactly. in the field prior to going into that. But then at the same time, we have new grads going straight into NP programs, uh-huh. uh, which has its own pluses and minuses in my in my brain. I used to be of the mindset that you have to do so many years before you go into. Just I think mm-hmm. it would make you a better MP. But I've seen some incredible MPs that have gone straight in to an MP program, and they've come out incredible MPs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, so yeah, I, I agree. There's a there's a lot to be to be worked out, and I think we do ourselves a disservice by by not having some kind of a baseline core competencies that we mm-hmm. look at. Uh, so there's a national standard where we can say, this is our standard and isn't, oh, this state does this. Oh, by the way, this other state does this. And there's so much differences in scope and what they allow and what they don't allow. But you know, research support does support the fact that there should be full scope of practice uh, oh, yeah. capabilities. I mean, that's, that's a given, but it's just a matter of, um, I think part of the problem is we can't, we have difficulty as a profession talking to the specifics as to why we should have. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm not a nurse practitioner. I, I don't know why I'm saying we, we as a profession, I should say. There you go. That uh, so. works. <laughs> so very cool. Now you decided at some point that you are going to, I mean, you have, uh, you have selected some very specific populations that you are interested in serving mm-hmm. and it's, and it's primarily very underserved populations. What got you interested in those populations uh, and can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, the monolingual Spanish-speaking population in particular, and especially living in California, like there's a huge Spanish-speaking population. A big reason, well, I learned Spanish when I lived in Nicaragua. I got C's in high school. I'm just like, for those of you out there <laughs> wanting to learn Spanish, it's possible even if you didn't do well in high school Spanish. Um, but, you know, I, I became fluent in the language and there is a huge, there is just a shortage of psychiatric or mental health providers who speak Spanish. And th- there are nuances that get lost in, in through a translator if you're trying to stumble through you know, a psychiatric assessment. And it's so nice to be able, you know, I see patients' faces light up when they're like, oh my gosh, you speak Spanish. Thank goodness I can have a conversation with you. Um, they just get left behind. I have had so many instances of patients just not being heard. And like, honestly, half of the time they come to me and it's not even a psychiatric issue, but because it's a medical issue and they only speak Spanish, it's never addressed. And so what I'm able to do, like I end up being more of a case manager in that way. I write a nice like long letter to their regular clinician being like, Hey, this is the problem. I think you should probably address it. And then the patient actually gets the care that they need. Um, So it's just people not getting care. I mean, it happens to be that they speak Spanish, but like any person not getting the care that they need, you know, that, that, 
it's there's someone who really cares about people and wants to see them want to see them like get their healthcare needs met like it, it's a thing that I try to focus on um with the LGBT community I mean I live in the Bay Area you know if you want to talk about one of the a very dense population of one of the LGBT individuals it's here again they are very marginalized um so much it and what it ends up doing is it creates barriers to care that don't need to necessarily exist. Um, and my goal is to try to pull down those barriers as much as possible. I very often, I don't have it here because I'm not in my office. However, in the office where I work out of, over my right shoulder, I have a pride flag as well as a trans flag that's above me. You know, they're small, but it's one of those situations where people see that. And especially if they're a member of the community, they're like, oh gosh, this person like maybe might listen to me and hear my concerns. Um, the interesting thing about working within that community is once they get an, uh, once word gets out, especially among the trans community, that you're a person that works with them and, you know, is, wants to hear them and help them, uh, by word of mouth, you just, it, people come to you. It's, it's been fascinating. And that's why I joined WPATH because I felt as though I was getting a number of patients that were within the trans community and I didn't really have the scope of knowledge that I needed to provide competent care. And so, you know, through that process, I am working on getting my certification within WPATH, which is it's very, you have to get 50 CEUs and have a mentorship. It's a very intensive uh, um, certification process. Yeah, that's fantastic. Because, you know, uh, two things you, you kind of touched on, and I think it's it's two topics we don't really, uh, I'm, we don't really talk about a lot in higher education. Uh, is you will have patients with uh, that speak different languages. I mean, in, even in my own family where we have, like when my um, grandmother was here, she only speaks Farsi, oh. right? Uh, so, and she needed to make physician visits um, mm -hmm. and she always have to have somebody with her uh, or, you know, the, the, the translation services, it's, it loses something and something is lost in translation when you have, when you don't have somebody that speaks your language, some of the uh -huh. nuances or myths, some of the, you know, the feelings that go into and the emotions that go into the conversations get lost in the translation and it becomes very mechanical. And so for something like psych and mental health, where it, it is a lot of emotion and, and uh, opening up to someone uh, some of that information, it gets lost if you, if somebody's translating for you, right? Uh, exactly. So you tend not to open, I think you tend not to open up as much. Um, I mean, it's, I mean, it's definitely, definitely being a, a Spanish speaking is a huge plus, but I think it's something that we need across the board from a recruiting pers perspective of actively recruiting individuals that are uh, and incentivizing them going into the field because there's such need. I mean, especially like in, in California where we have such a diverse population, uh, you in the Bay Area, me in LA. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's so many people that are that are monolingual that that don't that don't necessarily speak English or don't speak English well enough to communicate what they need to uh, when it comes to healthcare and psych mental health. So um, that's that's great. That's great on that. Now, can you tell me a little bit more about this um, certification? Uh, is it open to everybody? Do you need to be, uh, you know, I mean, for a mental health perspective or provider, um, what, what is the, what is the incentive for somebody other than um, wanting to, what, what, what like key areas do they kind of tap into 
or you think would be beneficial somebody if somebody's mental health listening to this podcast don't know about this what is what is the benefit for them the benefit in all honesty wpath like focuses on all healthcare providers so okay. they they touch on all aspects of transgender care and so of course you know everything is a small piece of this whole puzzle that goes into the care of any specific type of individual um, as a mental health clinician it's i feel that it's really important because you do need to know all the various aspects that go into caring for a transgender individual because it's it's there are different aspects of it. There are nuance when we're talking about hormones, like if we're making physical transitions, you know, these are different parts of the care of a transgender individual that are gonna to need to be understood by the clinician. So I think a big motivating factor should be for anyone who's wanting to go into this is it's not the role of the transgender individual to teach them, to teach the clinician about like what is the standard of care and how they should be treated and all the aspects that go into caring for trans caring for a transgender person. And so like, I really feel like the onus is on the individual clinician to educate themselves. And that's what I appreciate about WPATH is they provide a very robust way in order to achieve that. Um, and so I would say for any clinician, any clinician, regardless of specialty out there who has an interest in serving and working with the transgender community, like this is a great way to like take hold of that responsibility as far as educating yourself about this population so that you can provide competent care, but also not put the burden upon the patient to educate you about them and their care. Yeah. Um, now this is a, this is a great topic because I don't think we talk about it enough. Uh, and I remember myself, uh, when I was bedside, I had a transgender patient and I got to the point where I'm like, I don't know what to do. Uh, because it was very foreign to me, right? Uh, I hadn't had that experience in nursing school. Nobody talked about it in nursing school. Uh, but here I was as a new grad and I had to go ask. And luckily my preceptor was uh, informed enough to tell me, you know, some of the, some of the things I had to do, not that I had to do, but what, 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 that would be, um, you know, um, appropriate, right? Uh, because, you know, we had to do, we had to do, um, we had to put in a Foley and, you know, it was one of those things that I was like, well, how does this work type of a thing? And he came in with me, walked me through the process. Um, and, and it wasn't, you know, it, it went actually very smoothly and, and everything was fine. Uh, but, uh, I found myself at, at a point where I'm like, nobody has talked to me about this. And here I am with a patient that needs care and I'm not, and I, and I don't have the the skill set necessarily or the knowledge of how to approach this. Um, so why do you th so? Here's my question for you: Should this be something? And I know the answer for me, uh, but should this be something that we spend more time in uh, undergraduate uh, programs? One hundred percent. We we talk about treating diverse patients from a variety of ethnic and backgrounds, you know, and trying to be aware and. and I don't like to use the word competent, more humble to like the fact mm. that these people have a different experience to our own. And I think right. that that needs to be extended to like the gender minority population as well. Um, I don't, they're out there, they exist and they have a right to quality and competent care. I think that nursing programs are slowly, painfully, slowly starting to come around to the knowledge that, you know, they are also responsible for 
teaching young nurses how to provide uh, competent care to these individuals, or at least to start that conversation so that, you know, like you said with yourself, like you're not like stepping into a room of a transgender patient and then having your foot, you know, jaw drop on the ground because you don't know what to do or what to say or how to interact with them in a way that is going to at least um, not, not shut down the communication process when caring for those patients. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't, I mean, for me, it was, I mean, I definitely became uncomfortable, not because I was in this, in the room with, with a patient that was transgender, but I became very uncomfortable because I had to take care of them and I didn't have the, and I, I, you can say competency. I didn't have the competency to do Mm -hmm. it um, because again, something I've never learned about. We had male, we had female, and that's kind of what we did. Um, but like the conversation, I, I hadn't even been in that conversation when growing up in LA, uh, I knew transgender people. I had worked with transgender people, but now I had to take care of a transgender patient and that's where the uncomfortable, and I'm sure that translated, you know, across the room as soon as I walked in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it wasn't, I think it was because I was uncomfortable because I didn't have the knowledge that I thought I should have in order to take care of this patient. And I kind of feel, and I, and I felt bad more for, for the, for the patient than, you know, even myself, because all of us, because I knew that was translating mm-hmm. uh, when I was in that room. Um, but luckily um, everything worked out fine. And we took care of the patient at the end of the day, but I had to, I had to borrow somebody else's skill set to do it. Um, so, so yeah, so that's great. That's, that's great information. Um, so now you are, you're, you're still practicing. Um, what does your practice look like now? Uh, what, what is, what is the daily role of you, especially we're in the middle of a, we're still in the middle of a pandemic, unfortunately, <laughs> every time I do one of these, I'm like, we're still in the middle of a pandemic. Still in the middle of a pandemic. Um, I, it's so um, the majority of my role is medication management. So I, you know, I have patients come to me, we see how they're doing on their meds, treating them for whatever the issue is, talking about side effects, you know, whether the job, the medications are doing their jobs and then kind of going from there. Then the other aspect of it is, is I see a lot of patients who I've been seeing for the past five years and their medications are at a stable place. And a lot of it's me checking in with them and just making sure they're doing okay. Um, you know, the relationship with a mental health clinician is, is different than that, you know, I would say with primary care, like I get a 30 minute interview, like, you know, I get 30 minutes to really sit with people and you can have a decent conversation with someone in 30 minutes, you know, ask about their kids, ask about their grandkids, how's work going for you? Do you feel like the meds are doing their job? Like, how can I help you to be able to function at your most optimal place? Um, you know, I appreciate that there is very much there is a relationship that gets established there where you can really, you know, get to know one another and, you know, make sure that they're doing well with. So that's with established patients with new patients, a, a big portion of it is doing evaluation. Um, you know, you sit down and you try to figure out what's going on with people. So often I get patients who come in and, um, you know, there is a lot of stigma associated with mental health. People are afraid to come and see people like me, which is crazy because I'm amazing and super fun. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, it's one of those things is like trying to not uh, perpetuate that stigma associated with mental health and trying to help open that door being like, Hey, we can help you to feel better. Let's figure out what's going on with you. And sometimes that means medications. I try to be really open with people that I don't get paid by the pill. You know, sometimes people want to have, get, to, get an evaluation and have a conversation about meds and see what their options are as far as treatment are concerned. Um, 
you know, and, and at least start the conversation about that. And sometimes I feel like if you don't press and pressure people to do things that they feel uncomfortable with, they're more likely to swing back around and be like, hey, you know, a lot of this stuff resonated with me. Maybe we can have this conversation further. You know, I get other people, I had a situation today, I got a patient who came to me with um, on medications, but just not feeling like they were being heard by the person that they're working with. And I'm like, okay, well, let's have a conversation about that. Like what's going on with you? What are they doing that I, that I can try to avoid doing so that I can help you get the care that you need that you don't feel like you're getting right now. Mm. Like a big part, it's listening. It's really, it's listening and also hearing people because you can listen and not hear what's being said. Like that happens all day long, all the time, but it like listen and really hearing what people are saying because a lot of times what comes out of people's mouths isn't what necessarily is the issue, you know? veterans i'd like to use the example of veterans i love working as a vet i love working with veterans but we are a very specific population so whenever you work with a vet you know vets always get tagged as being grumpy or being angry you know veterans when they get like heated or they have conversations they stand up they start gesticulating you see the knife hands getting thrown around and it doesn't mean that they're aggressive or grumpy it's that's how vets communicate when you're in the military and you start getting like emphatic about something you stand up like that's how you have a conversation you don't do it sitting down and so you know people who have been told that they have like anger issues and it's like no they're they're better and they're just standing up that's how you have a conversation it's fine <laughs> uh, i needed you in in one of my hr meetings about six or seven years ago uh, so <laughs> where i was counseled on how i was talking I'm like i'm not angry when they're like oh you're angry i'm like no i'm really not this conversation is making me angry that you think i'm angry right. <laughs> You're like, no, no, no. You're like, oh, man. <laughs> yeah, I have. I've had to do. And, and I, well, I want to talk about veterans a little bit more. And you brought it up. But uh, but yeah, but it's it's, you know, so many organizations say we want to hire veterans, but mm-hmm. don't know how veterans act and they don't yeah. see it as a different culture. And when they don't understand it, I know so many veterans that have ended up in HR because, and even oh. myself, I've, I've gone there, unfortunately, more than once because <laughs> of what I, something that I've talked about or something that I've said that was perfectly normal when I was in the military, mm-hmm. but now all of a sudden it's seen as aggressive or, or angry or, you know, like, like, so, so it's, it's, it's I've, I've, I've spent like, you know, I said, I'm still in transition after 20 years of being in the military, uh, but, you know, transitioning into the civilian world, because I, uh, up till today, I still see myself modifying behavior so I can fit in. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that's, that, that goes with, I think every veteran, regardless of how long you're in uh, some of those behaviors you pick up, it's life, it's lifelong and you have to either unlearn them or modify the behavior Uh, because most of the time we're going to be in environments that aren't, filled with other veterans that were that are going to understand what we're talking about right uh, but i don't want this to turn into a therapy session for me but <laughs> <laughs> free therapy for the podcast um so yeah but it's very true uh, it's very true uh now with the veteran specific um i, I want to ask you uh because i know with everything that's going on with uh, afghanistan right now I just read uh, that the number of calls into the VA for psychiatric mental health has increased uh, over the past week, uh, because I know a lot of people felt very vested in in that, that, uh, Uh not only the country, but the population and the relationships that they built over there. Um, And it feels very, they 
there's there's definitely a lot of emotions going on. And if anybody follows my Twitter, they would they would have seen I'm not happy about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, from a from a, from a I, I know there's a shortage overall for mental health providers across the country. Um, is there a place for uh, nurse practitioners? Um, to fill that gap specifically, yes, yes, for the general population, but specifically for the veteran population, because most of our veterans are getting their care outside of the VA system. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a place where they can, uh, you know, the civilian nurse practitioners or mental health providers uh, to get um, the proper, um, um, I, I hate the word, using the word competency, uh, I, to get the skill set they need to treat the veteran community? or to help the veteran community? Um, to my knowledge, there are a number of residency programs that exist within the VA across the United States. And so that that is something that the VA, I feel like, is doing very right in terms of psychiatric mental health nurse practitioners that a lot of other organizations just had, don't have the bandwidth for at the moment. I know um, the San Francisco VA over at Fort Miley, they have a residency program that they run a number of people through every single year. And they do a, they do a fantastic job of exposing new graduate um, psych NPs to, to veterans and veteran issues so that they can gain that competence. Um, I, I would love to see an expanding of, of programs like that within the VA. I think that, you know, I recently got called by a vet that I served with she was actually in the VA, like she worked for the VA at Travis Air Force Base while I was active duty. And she called me and said, Summer, you know, we have the VA at Martinez and we have like three open slots. One of our psychiatrists just left and we were like, are really hurting for a second piece. Um, there's, there's a huge need right now within the VA for, for clinicians, you know, such as like psychiatrists or second peace to be able to provide care to veterans. Um, but also, I don't know, like for, civilian clinicians who are going to be working on the civilian side of things who also treat veterans. I don't know that there really is much in the way of resources in order to be able to, to help them with getting the, the competencies in order to be able to treat vets. I don't think that actually exists. If it yeah. does, I don't know about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I haven't, I haven't seen, there isn't a whole, a whole lot out there uh, as far as helping the civilian community assist the veteran community because everyone the default answer is it tends to be oh go to the VA yeah but yeah. again uh, we have like I said most most of our veterans are not seeking care at the VA system uh-huh. uh, and I, I and I feel like I, I'm bringing my my issue my PTSD up a lot but uh, so I have uh, I, I, I I'm not, I, I'm not a former P- I have PTSD uh, mm-hmm. for my service and I went to a private and I've and I've never used the VA system I've always had health insurance so I've always oh just use the civilian, I've, I've not, um, but I did actually seek, uh, seek a therapist at one point uh, many years ago where I had a difficult time. Um, and uh, like within five minutes in the conversation, his answer was like, uh, you should go to the VA, right? Yeah. Um, where I was like, I was like, but I'm already in your office, right? Uh, so I think there, there's definitely a gap uh, in the civilian community for, uh, for, uh, for treating veterans outside of the VA system because the VA system, I mean, it's the backlog still continues getting care. Isn't as optimal as it could be. Uh, They are constantly, uh, you know, um, um, have lack, have, 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 there's a lack in, uh, in, uh, in um, personnel 
Uh-huh. Right. There's there's all did they have huge transitions between you know people coming and going and um, not a very stable environment for a lot of veterans. Even though when they do provide care, they provide good care. It's just that um, it's not optimal as it should be. So that's a lot of and again, a lot of veterans don't even want to deal with the VA system and just mm-hmm. want to use their private private health insurance. And I think that's where there, there might be a gap. Um, maybe something uh, we need to think about as a profession of how are we closing those gap, closing that gap for, because I don't think anybody else is. Yeah, no, I completely agree. As it's interesting, I also have PTSD from my time in the service and service connected for that. Um, I see a therapist on the civilian side just because getting in to see, I mean, it's kind of confounding for me because I did work in mental health, like in the local area. So I know a lot of clinicians. So it's an odd experience for me. Like I don't necessarily like, I'm like, eh, there's too much intermixing of like water. I might end up with somebody <laughs> I know I'm like, no, I'm good. Um, but I get the rest of my care through the VA. Like I almost exclusively get all my care through the VA here in Northern California. And I'm there, you know, sometimes you have to advocate for yourself. Um, it, that is a part of it, but I feel like in civilian health, that's a reality as well. Like if you're not getting the care that you need, you need to step up and, and talk about that piece of it. But, yeah. um, there is the, the VA could be doing more undeniably. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I have, a um, I, my, my, um, sister-in-law does, uh, she's, she's a lawyer and she does, um, uh, work with, with the veteran community. Um, and, you know, there's all the resources for her to, learn about you know whether it's the it's learning about the uh, military culture learning about the you know there's programs there's free programs for her to to sit down learn about and be able to provide that uh, i wish something like that existed in the in the civilian version for healthcare oh, that, yeah. that would be i think that would yeah yeah that research just doesn't exist unfortunately <laughs> all right uh thank you so much um anything else that you want to share? I mean, you're doing amazing work uh, and I wish you the best of luck. Uh, Anything else that you want to share with with our listeners? I would just um, add to normalizing, taking care of your mental health. If that means seeing a therapist, then see a therapist. If that means seeing somebody for medications, whether it's your primary care provider or a specialist, I say do it, especially right now in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, life is stressful in general, right? We don't even need to throw a pandemic on top of it. Just to say is like adulting is hard, like regardless of where you're at in the process, unless you are a multimillionaire and don't have to worry about that stuff, um, which, <laughs> which most of us aren't. But, you know, the pandemic added a couple, quite a few extra layers to all that stress. And like, there's no shame in getting the mental health care and reaching out to people if you need it. I always tell people, you know, it's easier to dig somebody out of a three foot deep hole than a 12 foot deep hole. I'd rather be pulling somebody out of a three foot deep hole. And so if you notice that you're in a three foot deep hole, stop digging and give somebody a call to help get you out of it. We're here for you and we want to help people out. Thank you. That's awesome advice. Uh, Thank you so much. Uh, We've been listening to Dr. Summer Thompson. Uh, I wish you the best. We're staying connected uh, and uh, uh, we shall uh, see everybody soon with our next podcast. Thanks very much for joining us. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the RN Mentor with your host, Ali Taya. Please don't forget to visit www.aliartayeb.com. That's www.aliartayeb.com 
our podcast notes and resources. And don't forget to subscribe. Until next time, I wish you fair winds and following seas.